<laughs> now then I want to uh, read our second lesson. It is taken from Ephesians 1. And it's a great prayer that Paul makes. Note uh, the note of thanksgiving that occurs here. And try to think of people in the church that you are thankful for. Try to think, I, I was thinking this last night, Helen Shows came by our house. Only the good Lord knows how many people that lady visits and helps in one way or another. Sylvia Crawford is always helping someone there. Uh, Edith Barton, there are many, many other people who are always doing something for someone else. Those folks that were out at the juvenile evaluation place this morning. Uh, we've got many people who work hard uh, to try to witness by their uh, deeds and works their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's scary to mention just a few when there are so many, uh, but uh, we are thankful for all who uh, bear a testimony to Jesus. Now, Paul, last week we had gotten to the part in the Ephesian letter where I had to stop. We just got into predestination, which is always a good place to stop. Uh, uh, by the way, I was reading Dwight L. Moody this week, and he said uh, uh, that he explained the elect this way, that the whosoever wills were elect, and the whosoever wants were the non-elect. <laughs> And that's a good explanation. Uh, now then, uh, we are beginning at verse 15. For this reason, this is a prayer. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you. He was thinking of these people in Ephesus and the circular uh, route that this letter would take to other churches. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. What a tremendous statement. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Let us pray. Our Father, we do sing hallelujah 
and we praise you for the great blessings which you have shown and given unto us. The greatest of all blessings is the knowledge of yourself, which you have revealed to us through patriarch, through prophet, through psalmist, uh, through the prophets, through the apostles, and best and fullest of all in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have not left us to struggle alone, but that you have given us the gift of the Holy Bible. We bless you for this year of the Bible. And for those who have taken that word of yours as their rule of faith and life, help our minds to be enlightened by its truth this day so that we may faithfully live according to your will. To that end, we pray that you will bless the gifts which we bring and use them to bring glory and honor to your name. For Jesus' sake, amen. I was thinking last week of a very wonderful experience that I had in 1960, um, 1961 I believe. I flew out to India with Dr. Billy Graham and on the way over to India we stopped in London where he was to uh, make some telecasts. And while he was busy with the telecasts, I went to see a film. Uh, I'll never forget it because the name of the film was I Shoot for the Stars. And it was a, 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 the story of Werner Van Braun, the brilliant uh, builder of the V-2 uh, rocket uh, series, which had been launched, if you will remember, during World War II against the city of London itself. And it created great and devastating havoc as Hitler had sought to terrorize the population of Great Britain with a new monstrous weapon. I remember the cold reaction that I felt in that movie theater because these were people who had been through the Blitz in London. They were people who had heard those dreadful motors coming and then the horrendous explosion that followed. They knew what it was like. I remember also how after coming back to the United States, I was asked to speak in a Presbyterian church in Huntsville, Alabama. One of the elders in that church was a full captain in the United States Navy. He was assigned to Werner Van Braun as a public information officer. He attended the meetings in which I was preaching and became interested in me and wanted me to go out to the Redstone Arsenal and meet Werner Van Braun. I was very happy, of course, for the privilege of going there and seeing uh, the rockets that they were working on, which would later go to the moon, and talking with Werner Van Braun. I remember him telling me a little bit about his own Christian experience. And then later, I picked it up in writing. He had not realized the extent to which Hitler's horrors had been wrought in Europe. He did not know of the atrocities against the Jews. He was a young, brilliant scientist who was suddenly given everything that he needed to perfect his dream 
of sending a rocket that would one day go to the moon. And so he took advantage of this. And that became his goal and his God. And he forgot about everything else and submerged himself into that. And then when the truth came alive to him in May 1945, and he was able to surrender to the Americans and they were able to bring him to the United States along with other German scientists. He was brought out to El Paso, Texas, where there was an, a proving ground for instruments like rockets. He said that as the word of Dachau and Buchenwald and Belson and Ravensbrück and Auschwitz and Treblinka and all of the hideous horror camps of Hitler began to dawn upon his consciousness that he became terrified and afraid of the evil that existed in man and what man had done to man and how foolishly he had fallen into that. He said that he felt just gutted inside and burned out ethically, that there was nothing to him anymore. He had no real personal faith. And he said one day he was driving his car, headed to the arsenal there in El Paso, and a church bus with children like we had here and working class people were singing loudly some gospel songs. And he said, I don't know why, but I just followed the church bus. And he said, it went to a little white wooden church. And I parked my car out in the yard. And I watched these men in overalls with clean shirts and these little children singing and I saw them go into a church building. He said, then I found myself walking into the back of the church and sitting in a back pew. He said, I listened to them. They sang enthusiastically. They prayed fervently. And he said, the remarkable thing to me was that they seemed to believe what they were singing. They were praying to God and their prayers were moving to me and I could feel the Spirit of God. He left the church. His work called him across the country and he went into a hotel room and picked up a Gideon Bible and he started to read it. If you've ever noticed in the front of a Gideon Bible there will be a directory so that you may look up certain passages that deal with whatever problem you may be faced with. And he began to look at those passages of scripture and they began to sink into his mind. Later he came to Alabama. He reaffirmed a faith in Christ that had dried up in his earlier years and he sought a testimony as a Christian. It was not enough to know science, not enough to shoot for the stars, 
but he needed a personal knowledge of God. When we began our study of Ephesians, we saw that Paul is overwhelmed by the riches that believers have in Christ. Some of us have known people. I remember a woman who died right down the street from where I live. I knew her very well. Her name was, she was a German lady. And uh, when she, her, her brother had been a very fine gunsmith and, and uh, locksmith in our city in Paris. And I had known that family. There were two old maid sisters and then finally this uh, one was left. And I used sometimes to go and visit her home. She died and they found in the rocking chair, she died of starvation. And they found in the rocking chair that she was sitting in, when they took it apart, they found back then more than $50,000 in cash. And that was in the 1930s. She had riches that she did not realize or would not use. And what Paul is saying here, that if you are a believer in Christ, you have riches too. Riches that you ought to use. He calls them every spiritual blessing. He tells us that we were chosen in God before the foundation of the world. This is not to make us arrogant or proud, but to prompt in us a desire after holiness and blameless. He tells us that we are adopted into God's family. That means that God takes all in who will come to him in Christ Jesus. And he prompts that in us. I loved looking at the little children here this morning. You saw Cambodians, you saw Parthasians, you saw Chinese. We had one real American. We have a little Indian boy from Arizona. And I think that's wonderful. Our church has these. Uh, but we are adopted into the great family of God uh, as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. That means he worked in us grace before we would have ever chosen him. Stacy Farrier used to be a member of our, used to be a regular attender of our church here. His wife was a member and Dr. Farrier was for years a missionary out in uh, China. One of his favorite hymns, and he taught this to me, is 422 in the hymn book. And it's, I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew it was not I that sought thee, O Savior, true, but that the Lord was seeking us. In other words, we could not have come to the Lord if the Lord had not come to us first. 402, I'm sorry. Look at 402 just a minute in your hymn book. You can learn something if you look at the hymn book. I sought the Lord, and afterwards I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. The hunger and the thirst after righteousness is created by God. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. 
Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. I find, I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou wert long beforehand with my soul. Always thou lovest me. You see, our salvation started in the mind of God before the creation of the world. And this thought gripped Paul as a rich blessing that he wanted to convey to us. And so he seeks us to understand these riches that we have in Christ. Notice uh, his prayer that begins at verse 15. And compare it with some of the other prayers that Paul makes too. I, I was really put under conviction to see how the apostle prays uh, for believers. Um, he, he wants us to discover more and more of Christ. Anytime you think you have arrived spiritually, uh, Augustine put it this way, he says, he who says enough is already a lost man. That's a real condemnation. He who says enough is already a lost man. If the Christian man is indeed one who has caught a genuine glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Christ, how can he not be sure that he has still before him infinitely greater discoveries from glory to glory? His root is settled and forever. He will never find a substitute for the cross, but his branches will extend themselves and forever in that place of root and rest to receive more and more and more of the living power and of the light and air around to bring forth more fruit from the heavenly planter. Paul goes on that he thanks uh, God for these people, my prayers, naming you. Someone said to me yesterday that they made a trip all the way out to Montreat and went over to the L. Nelson Bell Library and looked in Dr. Bell's diaries just to see if it was true that Dr. Bell had prayed for them by name because Dr. Bell told them he did pray for them by name and they checked him out. Now do you tell people you pray for them and if you do, are you really praying for them? And if they came and said, let me see your prayer list, would it be there? Or are you just doing a polite form of lying? That's something, isn't it? Paul says that he prays for these people. And when he writes to the Corinthians, he says thank, uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, 4, he writes how he thanks God always on their behalf for the grace of God which is given to them in Christ Jesus. When he writes to the Thessalonians, he says, we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, 
When he wrote to Philemon, you remember about the runaway slave Onesimus? He thanks God for ma and makes mention of him always in his prayers that the communication of his faith may become effectual as a witness to the Redeemer. When he writes to a young minister by the name of Tim Timothy, he thanks God for the faith that was in him and in his grandmother and in his mother. At Thanksgiving time, do we thank God in this way? When we pray, how many of our prayers are really prayers of thanksgiving to God? Our prayers reveal a great deal about us. We uh, may hear the minister get up and say we're $5,000 behind in the budget. We're all going to have to pray. And then we, he says, Lord, make them all give. Make them give. The Lord, make him pay. Uh, that's not praying. Uh, uh, we need uh, to have our eyes enlightened is verse 15 is going to show us. For this reason, I, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you in your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Do you pray that people may know more of God and more of the revelation of God that's been revealed in Jesus Christ? John Calvin, uh, the great theologian, who loved this epistle to the Ephesians above all the other books in the Bible, John Calvin used to liken the work of the Holy Spirit to, to spectacles, that when they were put on, made more clear what God was doing, and so we cannot exist with, I'm glad this is the year of the Bible, and don't be alarmed about the abusers of translations. That stuff is faddest and it will go away. Uh, the translation should be an accurate representation of what God wants to say, not what we want to read into it. And when we take God's word, it's his word, and his word is powerful. And uh, so we take it. I pray that the eyes of your heart the word of God speaks to the eyes of our heart. That convicts me of sin. It convicts me of doing someone wrong. It leads me to a holier life so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Someone has said that grace is God getting the job done. And that's what it is. In this Paul prays that we may know God, that we may know that he has called us out of the world to a holy life in Christ, that we may know God's riches in Christ, and that we may know God's power. Someone called to my attention the ABC film that's to be shown tonight uh, that has much horror in it about the devastation of nuclear war. And nuclear war is a horrible thing to contemplate. 
and all of us pray to God for his restraining hand against that which is evil in the world. But let me warn you of something even more horrible, and that's to go to hell. Because hell lasts forever, and ever, and ever, and ever. The greatest work that the Holy Spirit will ever do in your life is to persuade and enable you to embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered to you in the Gospels so that you live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's when you're marked out as his own. God wants you to know these things. I remember as a I, I hope Dr. Robbie isn't watching me in a way. Uh, he's in heaven now, so I'm sure he can see. William Childs Robinson. I preached a sermon. You won't believe this. But uh, I tried to get a sermon ready called Four Things God Does Not Know. <laughs> you know what they would be? God does not know a sin that he does not hate. I remember Dr. Robbie looking at me when I announced that title. God does not know a sinner that he does not love. God does not know of any other way for you to be saved than through Jesus Christ. And God does not know of a better time than now. For today is the day of salvation. Scripture teaches us. These are the things that God wants you to know. And when John Bunyan came to that blessed experience of grace. That old tinkerer who walked from town to town mending pots and kettles with his hammers and his tools on his back. He laid down his heavy load, his burden. He put it down. Because he had come to a knowledge of what he called grace abounding. <laughs> And when he came into that knowledge of grace abounding, he could write the Pilgrim's Progress. Because he knew what it was like that all of us are pilgrims. All of us bear some kind of load. Sometimes we have to put that load down and rest and get enough juice to go on. And God is working in us. And he is working in us by his exceeding great power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that can transform even the hardest things that happen to us in life. One of the most moving experiences we ever had in Gaither Chapel was when Johnny Erickson was wheeled out here in a wheelchair and we pulled the pulpit back and she gave the testimony of her experience of the grace of God. I remember it very well because she could draw pictures by putting a brush in her teeth and draw with it. She was, is a paraplegic. And Johnny later went down to the Billy Graham office. She was here as a guest of the Grahams and we had her here in chapel to speak to the students. And then later we went down, and I remember one of our sons was quite young, and in uh, one of the schools in Black Mountain, he brought his whole class out here uh, to see her because she was such a vibrant, radiant Christian. 
and she drew him a picture of some pretty flowers and then wrote his name with the brush in her teeth. You know what happened? Johnny Erickson had been an attractive and vibrant athletic young woman. She dived into the murky waters of Chesapeake Bay and her head struck a rock. It was more shallow than she had expected. And now you know the story of Johnny Erickson. She had come from a family of means, but there would be no more sports cars, no more horse shows, no more lacrosse matches, maybe no more dates. She recalls, I was devastated. My life had been so full, I had been involved in as many school activities as I could squeeze in, and suddenly I hear these words, and I found myself alone, all alone, just a bare, immobile body between two sheets. My hobbies and possessions were meaningless to me now. Those beautiful horses in the barn, which I used to trick ride standing on their shoulders, I would never ride them again. I could not even feed myself. I could only sleep and breathe. Everything else was done for me. She tells the tragic story of being upside down in a striker frame where they turned her to keep her from having bed sores. And she said her tears fell out of her eyes and made a design on the floor that she looked at. Somebody even had to help her cry because she couldn't wipe her nose. But in the last years, that beautiful woman had her whole outlook changed because she surrendered her little broken body to the sovereign God of the universe who has all power in heaven and earth. And I remember she told me face to face how she had prayed fervently that if God was God, he would make her walk. But she said, God gave me something better than walking again. The sovereignty of God means that he ruled even over this event in my life. And because she believed he ruled, she, his great power turned that into a blessing. And we are a part of the body of Christ. And her body is a part of the body of Christ and makes known his blessings to other people too. And Paul is ecstatic here when he speaks of Christ whom he raised from the dead and made him sit at his right hand, that is the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, when the queen is given the orb with the, the globe on it, it has a cross on the top of it, because she is to know that everything will be under the lordship of Christ. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. He has put all things under his feet, and he has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body. This doesn't mean denomination. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all.
The lead singer came forward because she wanted to rededicate her life publicly to the Lord. And I asked the Lord to accept that rededication. Others may want to do something of the same way when you get home. Or you may want to make it known publicly. Let's bow for the benediction. Oh God, our Father, this great prayer which your servant uttered for not only the church in Ephesus, but the church in Colossae and the others that would receive it. We want to be our prayer too. We want to know more and more about Jesus. And we want to love him more and serve him better. We thank you for those who rededicate their lives to him, such as Helen this morning, and we pray that you will accept that rededication. And those who have felt some tug in their heart and wish to do the same thing, keep us from living lives, O oh God, that are false and shameful and full of sham, and help us to truly know you and to live for you. And in that knowledge to know that we can face all of the evil that may be wrought in this world, that we may even face death and be unafraid because of that great power which you work for us in Christ Jesus. Our biggest job now, Lord, is to live day to day for you. And we thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to seal us as your own and to work in us your will. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.